Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 238 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We're here today with Jonathan Lewis, a lifelong social justice activist and accomplished social entrepreneur. Mr. Lewis is the author of The Unfinished Social Entrepreneur. He's the founder of MCE Social Capital, a microfinance fund providing loans to impoverished women around the world. He's the founder and president of the Opportunity Collaboration and the co-founder of Copia Global, an online consumer catalog in Kenya. He's a trustee of the Swiss Foundation and a general partner of Dev Equity, a social impact investment fund, and is a former professor at NYU and UC Berkeley. He's a former chief budget advisor to the president of the California State Senate in Sacramento, and you can learn more about him and contact him directly at jonathanclewis.com. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Great. You're welcome. We're glad to have you on the show. The first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? What am I currently doing, and what have I ever done? Um, I think you're talking about my life. Uh, my general worldview is Sounds that, like it. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of, it takes my breath away to have you ask that question. Um, it's existential. Uh, I think the, the question that almost is uh, unavoidable for every citizen, certainly every citizen in the United States of America, is why aren't they devoting their time and energy and intellect and um, resources to the public interest. We live in the public square. We are creatures of the public square. We benefit from the public square and we have an obligation to contribute to the public square. Mm -hmm. So you've clearly contributed to the public square in a variety of ways. Uh, Right now you're the author of The Unfinished Social Entrepreneur, a recently released book. Could you Speak about what I, I think in that book you reflect a lot on your varied paths uh, in advancing the public interest throughout your life. Can you speak about what that book contains, what you hope individuals will take away from it, and why you even came to write it in the first place? I'd be happy to. Uh, the book is uh, um, part memoir, part uh, handbook on how to be a change agent, and part um, – conversation with the reader about certain ethical or uh, policy challenges that I think are particularly acute right now. So I've had three careers in my lifetime. Uh, One as a political activist and uh, a government employee, Uh, one in the private sector as a business person, and now um, in the private sector as a social entrepreneur, using the tools of the marketplace to advance social justice. Mm-hmm. At this particular moment, at this particular moment, I think the biggest single challenge for every social entrepreneur, every change maker, every citizen of this country is political action. And so where the book starts is with me as a young boy working in the anti-war movement, civil rights movement, other um, social change movements of the time, and comes full circle to today when I think we need to re, uh, re-energize ourselves um, 
to, to, to embrace uh, the political activism of the 60s and 70s. So that's so, the arc of the book, and, but it's not a theoretical book. It's practical tips, uh, practical issues that we all need to be thinking about as we go through this work and how to be more and more and more effective at it. Right. So you mentioned that the greatest challenge facing us today is political action, of course. Many would have thought that was also the greatest challenge facing us when you first became engaged in the anti-Vietnam War protest. Uh, what, I guess, why would you identify political action as the greatest challenge facing us today? Many would say there's health care or education, socioeconomic disparities, particular issue groups. And that's often how a lot of individuals become engaged in politics in the first place is around an issue they care about. But you're saying political action in general is the greatest challenge. Can you elaborate on that and why you yeah, identified that as a challenge? I'd be pleased to. And let me just disclose to the listenership that if you had asked me this question five years ago, I might have had a, uh, a, a dramatically different answer. For instance, my hot-button issue for the last 12 years has been economic justice for deeply impoverished women in the developing world, women living on a dollar a day. And some of the projects I've started include a uh, global microfinance program called MCE Social Capital, which provides uh, economic opportunity for these uh, women in 33 different countries around the world. We've put out about $150 million in microfinancing loans. Uh, I'm a general partner in a business development investment impact fund in Central America. I'm the co-founder of an Amazon-like uh, company and that's being beta tested in Nairobi, Kenya. And so the point here is that was my focus as well, picking a policy area, an issue area, a, a, a topical area, and developing deep expertise on it, staying focused, getting things done, using both the tools of the marketplace and other resources to, to, to advance that agenda. Well and good highly respected, very proud of the work. Anybody who's doing similar work, their allies, we're, we're in a kinship relationship to make the world a better place. That was then, this is now. We have to acknowledge the changing political dynamic in the United States of America. We are unfortunately cursed with a president in the White House and, a, um, and an anemic uh, Republican Party that is rolling back uh, at a rapid rate many, many, many of the gains that we've made over the past uh, three or four decades uh, since the 60s. And you just can't ignore that reality. To use the cliche example, uh, we find ourselves rearranging chairs on the Titanic. And so we, we have to be able um, to do both. We need to tend to our social enterprises, take care of our social ventures, pay attention to, our, to um, our nonprofit organizations and our foundation work and everything else we were doing, and also reclaim our responsibility as citizens to speak out, to get involved, to walk precincts, to vote, to contribute in political campaigns, and um, realign the political balance in this country. So it sounds like for you, political action really means 
meaning taking action to advance a Democratic Party within an electoral framework in domestic American political uh, campaigns. Is that what political action means to you? Yes. I think the challenge is the 2018 congressional elections. We need to create a uh, check and balance. um, And the only viable option for that is the 2018 congressional election. I'm not a, uh, an apologist or an advocate for the Democratic Party. I think it's flawed, it's imperfect, but right now it's the only game in town to um, put a check on the current president. And if you con- are concerned about racism or sexism or eco-terrorism or any of the other big issues of our time, that's the, that's the big game. And we are called upon to step up and play a role. It's not always the case that change agents get to choose their battlefields. Um, this one is given to us, and we may wear it uncomfortably. But we need to get uh, we need to, we need to put on this uh, this suit of armor and uh, enter the battle. It's interesting that you started your public activism working on uh, domestic politics, resisting actually American foreign policy, but on uh, the domestic front, and then. You ended up uh, were investing in uh, uh, in an in a online consumer catalog in Kenya and in an equity social impact investment fund in Latin America and helping women around the world in 33 countries who live on less than a dollar a day uh, develop their own businesses and means for financial self-sustainability. Uh, uh, I guess, and then you, and now it sounds like there's a new uh, president in the White House relatively new, and uh, because of that, you have to focus your attention domestically. Have you, uh, I guess, how how did you undergo the transition originally to have such a focus on international relations and then realizing that you needed to turn your attention back to your own backyard? I I don't see any dichotomy there. Mm -hmm. The question is, whose side are we on? Whose side are we on? And if you decide, in my case, that I wanted to fight for uh, the, the, the political and economic rights of impoverished women in the developing world, then I look at all the available tools to do that. That may be marching on a picket line. It may be buying fair trade products. It might be uh, using my investment dollars as an impact investor to invest in uh, job-creating businesses in the developing world. It might be um, – uh, electing an American uh, politicians who understand that um, reproductive rights for impoverished women is economic justice. Um, it, 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 there's, it, it's not, a, it's not uh, to us to uh, ignore any of the levers of power, and power comes in many forms. It, it, there's political power, there's economic power, there's the power of information and knowledge, uh, there's organizing power, there's the power of outrage. And so it's t- it, it, it is our responsibility mm-hmm. to use every available means at our disposal to advance the um, justice agendas that we uh, take on. So I'm just following what's laid out in front of me. But it's a little sure. silly, I think, for me to... Um, um, take false pride in creating economic development for hundreds of thousands of women around the world. And I'm deeply proud of it. 
and ignore the fact that at the exact same time, there are policies emanating out of the White House which are destroying economic opportunity for those very same women. So let's talk about the uh, – let's talk about some of your entrepreneurial ventures. You're the founder of MCE Social Capital, Microfinance. Talk to me about what that program was all about and what, does it, what it has accomplished uh, and how you really began to get that program off the ground. Well, it started 12 years ago. What the program does is um, provides very small business loans to mostly impoverished women. I say mostly because it's, it's not 100% women, but primarily women um, throughout the developing world. That's the end point. And there's, I think, currently in the program uh, close to three-quarters of a million women right now <clears throat> in the program. What we do is provide the financing for local organizations that are actually the local credit unions or, or banks for those women because they're all capital starved. So they start a program, they grow it to a certain point, they want to keep expanding, they're financially viable, they uh, operate in the black year in and year out. These women have a very high repayment rate on their business loans, uh, but the local organizations for a million reasons are unable to get additional financing. Some of it is discrimination. Some of it, some of it is uh, the economics uh, of, uh, as viewed by local bankers is unfavorable, whatever. So we come in as their bank and we provide them additional expansion capital, sometimes as much as $2 million at a time. And that's done um, through um, uh, our borrowing from American banks and providing the loan guarantees that provide the economic um, uh, assurity that both the commercial banks will be repaid and our borrowers will be uh, protected from um, any economic dislocation. So that's what yeah. we do. And Jonathan, let me just say we have close to $60 million in economic business loans in the field right now as we speak. Mm -hmm. Yes, fairly impressive. Just in terms of the foundation, the, the actual creation of the social capital fund, uh, you mentioned that you started it 15 years ago, so that would have put you in uh, 2002. Uh, of course, in 2006, Muhammad Yunus was awarded his Nobel Peace Prize for his work uh, exactly in this I, line what, of work. May I interrupt to say, I think there was a mass um, uh, confusion there. I, it was uh -huh. 12 years ago. Okay, 12 so it's actually ago. the same year. Okay, so is there any correlation between Eunice's work and your work? Dumb luck was the answer. Um, Eunice had been on the scene for quite some time. That's the year he was awarded the Nobel Prize, but he obviously had been doing it for a long time. I, I was doing volunteer work with a uh, mission-aligned organization to the Grameen Bank, which is what Eunice uh, formed, and that's where I discovered this problem of capital shortage. Mm -hmm. So there was kind of an intellectual alliance there, but no structural alliance. And uh, we just followed in Eunice's wake. He was creating and uh, financing and giving visibility to the entire microfinance field. We saw a niche to, to be supportive and helpful with our capital, and mm -hmm. that's what we did. Now, how did you transition from MCE social capital to SWIFT Foundation and Dev Equity? So, uh, it's linear only in the sense that once you're doing social justice work, 
you're part of a tribe. You meet people, you connect with people, uh, they provide uh, intellectual support, they provide financial support, they provide uh, 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 hugs on the days that are less than uh, uh, um, uplifting. And so both of, in both cases, I, I met the general partner of Dead Equity. Uh, the fund was just getting going. I like the business model of providing um, equity investment capital to small businesses coupled with technical assistance so that you're just not extractive, but actually can put, uh, putting something back into the uh, till by providing uh, business training and other um, connections and resources to, to these local businesses that we're supporting. I like the model, and so I signed up as one of the general partners in the case of becoming a trustee of the SWIFT Foundation. Um, one of the um, people who uh, works uh, with us in the microfinance people as a guarantor, a backer of these loans, uh, was the chair of the board of the SWIFT Foundation, John Swift, and he and his um, team invited me in to attend a few meetings and the chemistry was good and they thought I could make a contribution and invited me to join the board. Fairly so forward. it's not unlike the basic networking that every college student is uh, taught and encouraged to do to build their own network for when they go out to look for a job or they want to get involved in their local community or meet a life partner. It was just the same process, just at a different stage of my life. I'm sure, Jonathan, you have some amazing stories of impact and how your work has actually transformed lives on the ground. Would you mind sharing some of those with our listeners? Sure. Let me just share one from my book. It's in the last chapter of my book. The chapter is called Life Blood because it speaks about my own sense of this work being in my in my bloodstream. Um, it was the experience of discovering microfinance. I was uh, volunteering from a microfinance organization, but had literally never heard the word microfinance, microcredit. Didn't know anything about this. Thirty days prior. But as part of my training program, I flew down to Bolivia, went up into the far reaches of the Andes into a remote village, and sat in an open field with um, a half a dozen women uh, I, who spoke a pre-Inca language, still speak a pre-Inca language called I, Aymara, and uh, through multiple translators, uh, Aymara to Spanish and then to me, English, I sat on the outside of this group and listened as a woman stood up and told a story to her peers, not to me, but to her peers, about um, the, the benefits of the small business loan she had received. We're talking here $25, dollars $100 loan. Um, and that for the first time in her adult life as a mother, she was able to feed her children reliably three times a day. And the pride that that woman had uh, leapt across that group of women to me, spanning three language barriers. Um, and I just sensed that this was something worth doing with my life. So I came back from Bolivia and rolled up my sleeves and got to work. And it sounds, it's, it's, I'll just say this. It still moves me to this day. And sometimes when I'm in a, a, a meeting, a conference, uh, a social sector gathering or anywhere and, and uh, topics come up and people start wringing their hands and they're worried about this or they're worried about that or they're, 
I, 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 re, I, re, I try to reground myself in remembering that I'm not in that room for myself, but I'm in that room as a temporary spokesperson for that, that woman and a lot of men and women just like her. And hopefully someday she'll be in the room herself that uh, the people, uh, people uh, will have the power to speak up and speak out for themselves. But in the interim, that's my job. And that helps keep me focused on what's important, which to go back to what we were talking about, which is why I'm interested in political action now and in 2018, because I think that's what that is necessary to, uh, to preserve the rights and the dignity and the economic opportunity for that woman. So when you think about all the benefits that are accrued to that woman, which are very basic and simple, that she's able to provide three meals a day to her children, you would think that something uh, on the face of it that seems so beneficial would also have support domestically in Bolivia. What's the role of American venture capital funds that are investing in Bolivia compared to local financing, uh, though they may not have as much money as Americans? I'm sure there are financiers in La Paz or Sucre who could uh, uh, finance $25 or $100 loans, right? Well, I'm sure they have the financial capacity, but they don't have the, the moral, ethical, or political will to do it. It's that simple. I mean, the moral, basic ethical, moral, I'm, ethical, or political will to do it. The fundamental dynamic here is power and those who don't have it. And we're, we, a lot of what we're doing here is trying to rebalance 10,000 years of gender and racial and economic discrimination. So uh, if you're asking me, uh, why don't others do this? I don't have an answer for that. It befuddles me and annoys me and troubles me, but they don't. But that doesn't really matter to me. What matters is what you and I do. What, what are we doing to make the world a better place? That's the only thing I have control over. So you mentioned that we all live in the public square and that you don't know why others may not have the moral, ethical, or political will to advance the public interest. Can you speak about why it is that you have it, what your motivations are? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I don't think I can. I don't think I'm that self-reflective. I don't know that I can tell you why I have this instinct and other people don't. That's, a, that, that's you know, one of the great, um, you know, existential conundrums of all time. What motivates different people to do different things? What, how the, how, how, who has an empathy gene? Who doesn't have an empathy gene? How we perceive our community? Some people see, define their community very narrowly, their own family or maybe their family and neighbors. Other people define community very broadly as uh, and call themselves global citizens. And uh, I, I don't know that I can answer your question. Allow, myself, allow me to rephrase it, Jonathan. Uh, okay. suppose, suppose there's a listener right now to this podcast episode who may not have the moral, ethical, or political will to dedicate their lives to advancing the public interest for somebody thousands of miles away from them, somebody who may have voted for Trump, who may be struggling every day to feed their own kids in the United States, maybe in the, the middle of the United States in the heartland, and they voted for the Republican Party because they don't 
see a lot of benefit to the federal tax dollars that they pay to Washington. What is it that you say to somebody like that, somebody who doesn't have the same drive and motivation that you have to try to make the world a better place all over the world and who's struggling uh, and who may not be a Democrat? What do you say to that sort of person uh, about what they ought to do and what their motivations ought to be or what their motivations are? What do you say to that person? What I say to that person is this isn't about partisanship and it's not about political parties. I really don't care about that. What, you, what we each have to care about is who we want to be as people. Do we want to um, have our legacy and the legacy we leave our kids be that we hung out with uh, people who were selfish and mean-spirited and cruel and racist and misogynist and uh, willfully ignorant of the basic um, um, realities of our time. And that's a personal choice you have to make. I can't make that choice for you, and I don't want to make that choice for you. And it's, um, but it is for you to decide. And if you define your entire life um, uh, in terms of what did I get from government? What did I get from my community? What's in it for me? that will define who you are and what you are defining as a person who is um, uh, not able to enjoy all that life has to give because we all know that life is richer and more meaningful and better when we're givers, not takers. And a place that needs a lot, where we need a lot of people giving is making this world a better, uh, safer, and more humane place than it is today. And I'm not arguing that people should worry about people 10,000 miles away, but there are problems in our own communities, in our own states, in our own cities that need addressing, but they don't get addressed by shutting ourselves off. And no one, and, and no one I know is in favor of poverty. No one I know is in favor of less free speech. No one I know is in favor of denying religious liberty. No one I know stands around saying, how can we make people less healthy? So I don't think this is a big leap or a big stretch for people to, to, to think about. But that's it. People have a moment of terror because they're between jobs or between um, uh, or, or they're feel, fearful for the safety of their children or any, anything of the moment that throws us off our game doesn't need to be the thing that becomes, uh, doesn't have to define us forever. We can have bad days and, and still return to, do, to, to being our better selves. So, Jonathan, on that, yeah, yeah. on that topic of defining ourselves for forever, uh, we, as we, and as we approach the end of this podcast, I'd like to ask you to reflect for a moment on what your impact has been and what your legacy will be. A lot of times when you have investment programs, when you have various uh, business ventures around the world, what investors are interested in knowing is what is the measurable impact or how would you even measure that impact. So if I could throw the question over to you, Jonathan, how would you uh, like to see your legacy and what do you suppose the actual effect of your work in advancing the public interest has been and will be? I want to answer that question slightly off from the way you asked it, but I want to answer it the way I feel it, 
and the way it comes from Please, heart. go ahead. Yeah. I don't do this work because I'm trying to uh, fill out a, uh, an Excel sheet with numbers on it that shows my impact. I do this work because of what it because it's the way I want to lead my life. That's the first point. And second point is one of the lessons I learned back in the 60s um, and 70s in civil rights work and anti-war work and um, environmentalism and other things that we all uh, rolled up our sleeves and worked on is that most of what we do that's important, we do individually. Every picket line starts with one picket. Every call to justice starts with one voice. And so this question of measuring our impact is measuring the, uh, the, the contest is with my own accomplishments, is to be better than I was yesterday and to do this work uh, as a um, memorial to my own sense of what's worth doing. Full stop. That's it. Which goes back to your other question about what would I say to somebody who, for whatever reason, decided to vote for Trump last year or for whatever reason ideologically identifies with the Republican Party or whatever. It's not a question of some broad movement, and we need to get hundreds of thousands of people doing something before it's worthwhile. Most of what we do in life is worthwhile at the scale of one person, one hug, one smile, one act of kindness, one contribution, one, um, one bit of recycling, one effort to make the world better. It's measured in inches, not in miles. And that's my measurement for, as you put it, impact. And that has been Jonathan Lewis, a lifelong social justice activist and social entrepreneur, the author of The Unfinished Social Entrepreneur, founder of MCE Social Capital, president and founder of Opportunity Collaboration, founder of the Copia, of Copia Global, trustee of the Swift Foundation and general partner of Dev Equity, a former professor, uh, who speaks about uh, his career within three uh, general tracks of being a political activist, a businessman, and a social entrepreneur, framed within the context of defining meaning in his life by what he gives. Uh, he seeks to have a meaningful life, and for Jonathan, a meaningful life is one in which he gives uh, to the maximum of his ability. He, he speaks about having a moral, ethical, and political uh, imperative for advancing uh, the cause of social justice and improving the welfare for, for all of mankind. And simply put, at the end of the day, for Jonathan, a metric of being better today than he was yesterday is his means of evaluating whether uh, he's able to successfully advance the public interest. Because for Jonathan, every movement and every great action starts with one person, and there's no better person than the man in the mirror. So, Jonathan, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes. Leave a review of this podcast on iTunes and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 
And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.